Our Heavenly Father, indeed, we want to praise you for your greatness and your love that you have shown to us in your Son. And Father, we pray now that as we consider this word that we just read, that you would continue to be speaking to us, showing the greatness of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd help us to respond rightly to him, in submission to him as our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. You can turn back into your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 11. And there's an outline of the talk in the center of the bulletin. Thank you so much to the Bible readers who have uh, put a lot of effort into reading uh, those passages for us. They're not easy, are they? And uh, we're very grateful for you serving us in that way. 1 Chronicles 11 and 12. Well, what cause is great enough to give your life to it? What cause is, is great enough to risk your life for it? What cause is great enough that you would look to, to it and to it alone as your cause for joy and celebration? Now, life in this world is tragically short. And whether we die in tragic circumstances at a young age or whether we live to a good old age, life is too short to be wasted on irrelevancies. We all want our life to count. We all want to live for something that is big, something life-changing. Many of us sought such a cause, maybe curing cancer or landing on the moon or ending slavery or eradicating poverty. And each of us will be searching for that thing to give our lives to, maybe one of those, maybe raising a family, maybe building a business. Others of us will find it hard to think of anyone or anything that we would want to give our lives to unreservedly, because we're all too aware of human faults, we're all too aware of how causes so often disappoint, perhaps we'd rather just follow ourselves. But that's, of course, the definition of sin. So what cause is great enough to give our life to? What cause is great enough to risk our life for? And what cause is great enough that we would look to it and it alone as the cause of joy and celebration? Well, this passage this morning would have us see that there is only one person and one cause that is great enough to give our lives to. And that is God's king and God's kingdom. Well, as Tim reminded us last week, we saw the fall of King Saul and the rise of King David. King Saul was unfaithful, disobedient to God and rejected by God. He died a tragic death. And in his place, God had chosen David as king and God was with David. All Israel gathered to him. He conquered Jerusalem to be his new capital city. And we saw in verse 9, where we left off last week, David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And in our passage today, the chronicler wants to paint for us a picture of just how great David was. And he does that by showing us David's mighty men. Because as he, he highlights these, these men of great, great valor, well, it highlights even more the greatness of David 
the one to whom they would submit. And the Chronicles' aim in all of this is to inspire all of God's people to submit wholeheartedly to serving God's great King. To inspire all God's people to submit wholeheartedly to serving God's great King. Well, we see that very clearly in how the passage begins and ends. That's always a good clue to the purpose. Look at 11 verse 10. These are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom, together with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So here we see David's greatness. All these mighty men give strong support to David. And we see it's not just the strong men, uh, it's not just the mighty men, but, but all of them. All Israel are gathered together with these mighty men, determined to make him king. And we see the same thing right at the end of the passage as well, chapter 12 and verse 38. Having listed all the mighty men, we read, All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with full intent to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind, to make David king. So once again, we see all the mighty men gathered with one intent, wholehearted. They want to make David king. And there is his greatness as all these great ones elevate him. And again, it's not just the mighty men. All Israel are of a single mind to do the same, to submit under the rule of God's great king. All God's people must submit wholeheartedly to serving God's great King. That's what the Chronicler wants from us this morning. Wholehearted allegiance. Now, of course, David's long since dead, even by the time the Chronicler writes, but by going to the past, he's helping us to look forward to the future for the ultimate King that will be like David, one to whom we will be able to give our wholehearted, single-minded allegiance as the focus of our lives, that of course will be Jesus we will see. Well, chapter 11 we see is arranged uh, a bit like a pyramid structure. I don't mean a pyramid scheme, right? It's not dodgy or anything like that. But it goes from the greatest down to the least. We begin uh, point one with the three. And the chief of the three is listed first in verse 11. This is an account of David's mighty men. Jashabim, a Hakamite, was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. There's no doubt this Jashabim is a mighty warrior of extraordinary courage. Can you imagine it? What a feat to single-handedly kill 300 people with just a spear. It's not that he had a machine gun, right? That would be a bit easier. And if you look to the parallel passage, 2 Samuel 23, Samuel says it was 800 men. I'm not sure why they're different, but it was a lot of people that he killed. Well, we meet the second of the three in verse 12 to 14. Next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite. He was with David at Pastamin when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot 
and defended it and killed the Philistines, the Lord saved them by a great victory. So this Eliezer II, he is also a great hero. Just imagine, uh, there is all Israel fleeing. And he decides to be the only one. He turns around, he takes his stand, and single-handedly defeats the Philistines in a great victory. Now notice verse 14 reminds us that behind the power of these mighty men is the power of God. It was the Lord who saved them with a great victory. Ultimately, God is the mighty saviour, not these men. But they are great nonetheless. Now in 2 Samuel 23, there is a third, of course, out of the three. And his name is Shammah. And his great achievement is described very much similar to Eliezer, but he defends a field of lentils instead. Why is it similar? Why is one omitted? Again, we don't really know. But if these three mighty men are strong enough to defeat a whole army alone, what are they like together? Well, next we see the three of them working together. Look at verse 15. Three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam when the army of the Philistines was encamped at the valley of Rephaim. So Adullam is about 35 kilometers from Jerusalem and 15 kilometers from the Philistine town Gath. So verse 16 we read on, David was in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem, which is David's hometown. And David starts dreaming about his childhood. Verse 17, David says longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. You know, it's as if you're, you know, you've been away from home and you think, Oh, I just really you know, wish I could have that luxe, that Penang luxe. I miss it so much. Well, the mighty men overhear what David is saying. And in an act of reckless loyalty, they decide to make it a reality. Uh, Verse 18, we read on, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Now, it would have been remarkable enough if they had just snuck in in the middle of the night and got the water and, and come back, but that's not what they did. We're told they broke through the camp violently and forcefully. They killed all in their way. And here we see the level of devotion of these men to David. They're willing to do anything for him. Even this reckless act, risking their lives for a drink of water. Now, no doubt as they return, they're quite eager to see David's response when they come back with the water. But it doesn't go quite as they expect, does it? Verse 18, we read that David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord. You can imagine the look on their faces. You know, we just risked our lives killing all these guys to get you this water, and then you just poured it on the ground. What are you doing? But of course, David's not being ungrateful. He's not being insulting here. He sees in their act such great devotion and such sacrifice that to drink the water for his own personal pleasure, well, it would would be wrong. Look at verse 19, he explains. He said, far be it from me that 
before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. David recognizes the extraordinary sacrificial love that they have shown him in getting this water. It was obtained at a cost. It, it really represented their own blood. And so instead of drinking it himself, he decides to give it to the Lord. Notice verse 18 again. He says, he poured it out to the Lord. It was to be an offering, a a sacrifice in worship to God. It was as if he was saying that that this devotion, this love, this sacrifice, really it was only suitable to, to give to God himself. He is the one that is ultimately worthy. But here we see the commitment of the mighty men. Absolute allegiance. Joyful service. And here we see the character of God's king. He doesn't see his warriors simply as pawns to be sacrificed for his own personal benefit. He sees them as people whose lives are precious. I wonder if we see people like that in our ministries. Some of us are leaders and we, involve, we have people that we, that we oversee. Do we see them as people doing things for our benefit? Or do we see their lives as precious? Well, having seen the greatness of the three, we now zoom out to consider the greatness of the rest of the 30. Now, it should be clear to us that it's not a fixed group. It's not uh, the exact number that matters. Uh, It's saying that this is a special group of people. And the chronicler wants to highlight two more of this 30, Abishai and Benaiah. And we begin with Abishai, who was the chief, in verse 20. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the thirty. He wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name for him besides the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So this Abishai was David's nephew. Uh, He was a, a prominent person in David's life. It was Abishai who offered to eliminate Saul on David's behalf. It was Abishai who helped Joab in pursuing and killing Abner, who was, who was the enemy commander, and more. And so we're not really surprised when Abishai shows up here as this mighty warrior who likes a fight. And he's just like Jacobim. He kills 300 men single-handedly. He's great enough to become the commander of the 30 but we're told he's not one of the three. Next we meet Benaiah in verse 22. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had him had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, but Benaiah went down to him with a, with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. So uh, of all the great deeds that Benaiah has done, just three are recorded for us. The first, he strikes down two heroes of Moab. Now literally it reads here, uh, two lions of God of Moab. 
And that connects to the second thing that he does. Secondly, we're reminded of an occasion where he defeated an actual lion. So these Moabite heroes, they're like lions, but he defeated an actual lion as well under adverse circumstances in snow. What an amazing achievement. And then third of all, his crowning achievement, he defeats this Egyptian giant towering at over 2.25 meters tall. And he faces him without a weapon. He simply steals the Egyptian's weapon, which was absolutely huge, and finishes him off with his own spear. This guy, too, is is a hero, truly impressive. He became a commander, but once again, he couldn't match the three. We read verse 24, These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he won a name besides the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. So if a a, a hero as great as this can't even get into the three, and these three give their allegiance to David in this amazing way, how great is David? But of course that's not all, because having listed the chiefs and the commanders, now the chronicle lists the also-rans in these lists of heroes. He's got 31 more names to give and then a few more. The list is reproduced uh, from 2 Samuel mostly, but then additional names are added in verses 41 and 47. And the focus seems to be on the geographical origins of all these mighty men. So most of the first 10 names from Elhanan to Heled in verse 26 to 30, they come from Judah. Uh, Several of the names in verse 31 to 37, they come from the northern tribes. Uh, Then we have listed the non-Israelite origin people in verse 38 to 41. And then the additional names in verse 41 to 47 include people that lived east of the Jordan, Transjordan. So the point is that all these mighty men, they come from all over Israel and even beyond the borders of Israel but they all pledged their loyalty to David. Now, we can't miss the mention here, of course, of Uriah the Hittite in verse 40. Remember, he was Bathsheba's husband, one of those that David had killed, his own mighty man. He's listed last in 2 Samuel for emphasis, which is maybe why the chronicler extends the list to make it not so obvious. Well, having introduced all the mighty men, now the chronicler wants us to help us see how these mighty men chose David over Saul. Now, last week we saw the fall of Saul, the rise of David, and the chronicler wants to show us that David is the right king to side with and not Saul. Now, chapter 12 is totally unique to the book of Chronicles. It doesn't appear in Samuel at all, and so it, it helps to highlight for us the chronicler's big concern. Why is he writing this? And there's two big themes that come up in this chapter. The first is help for David, and the second is wholehearted allegiance. Now, many have noticed the, the circular structure of these verses. It seems like it's a favorite tool for the chronicler. I had something similar last time I preached. You can see on the screen. 
So we started off in Hebron, all Israel gathered to anoint David as king. Now in chapter 12, we start at Ziglag, then the stronghold, then the stronghold, then Ziklag, and we end with everyone gathered again at Hebron. And at the heart of this structure, you will notice, is that magnificent poem in verse 18, a poem about allegiance and help. Well, we start in Ziklag, verses 1 to 7, and here we have 21 uh, uh, experienced and well-armed soldiers from Saul's own tribe, the Benjaminites, coming to help David. Verse 1, now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish, and they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right hand or the left hand. They were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. So they're gifted soldiers. They can sling with whichever hand, but they give their allegiance to David and not to Saul. That was a dangerous thing to do. Saul was still king. Well, next we move to the stronghold and we see the great warriors of Gad join David. Look how they're described in verse 8. From the Gadites, they went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Interesting description, isn't it? So you've got these, these beefy, scary men that kind of dance like, <laughs> like deer. Their names are given. Ezer the chief, Obadiah second, Eliab third, Mishmah fourth, Jeremiah fifth, Atai sixth, Elio seventh, Johanan eighth, Elzabad ninth, Jeremiah tenth, Machbani eleventh. These Ganites were officers of the army, the least was a match for a hundred men, and the greatest for a thousand. These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and put to flight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. And so we have more experienced soldiers. Each of them can, can, can stand and defeat an army all by themselves. They're, they're formidable, they're brave, they're courageous, they're strong, they're fast. They'll even cross over an overflowing river to go and chase down their enemies and survive it. Verse 16 to 18, we have a second group come to the stronghold, this time from Benjamin and Judah. Verse 16, some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold, to David. David went out to meet them and said to them, if you've come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if you betray me to my enemies, although there's no wrong in my hands, then may the God of my, our fathers see and rebuke you. And then the spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the thirty, and he said, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. And this, this, this piece of poetry, right in the middle of the account, it really stands out, doesn't it? It's spoken by the chief of the thirty. We are yours. We belong to you. Peace to your helpers. 
your God helps you. We can't help but, uh, but notice the repetition of that word help here. David calls on them to help him. And they recognize God is on David's side, helping David. And so they swear allegiance to him. This is God's plan. And they fall in line with it. And then in verse 18 to 22, we have the second scene at Ziglag. And once again, we have experienced soldiers deserting Saul and coming over to David. Verse 18, some of the men of Manasseh deserted to David when he came with the Philistines for the battle against Saul. Yet he did not help them, for the rulers of the Philistines took counsel and sent him away, saying, At the peril to our heads he will desert to his master Saul. As he went to Ziklag, these men of Manasseh deserted to him, Adna, Jozebad, Jediel, Michael, Jozebad, Elihu, and Zilathai, chiefs of thousands in Manasseh. They helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor and were commanders in the army, for from day to day men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. So we began the chapter at the beginning uh, of Saul's reign as David's on the run. Now we are at the end of Saul's reign. He's about to fall in battle. And before his final defeat, these mighty men, they see the writing on the wall for Saul. They desert to David. They save their lives. They pledge to help him. And that final sentence is striking, isn't it? From day to day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army, like an army of God. Indeed, can you imagine? He's got an army of heroes. They're all warriors. They're all mighty men. And they're all with David. They're all helping him. They're all on his side. Well, finally, in verse 23 to 37, uh, sorry, 23 to 40, the chronicler shows just how great this army is as they all gather to Hebron to crown David as king. We have 13 tribes listed. That's quite unusual. Even the Levites are fighting for David. And each tribe has a number and a description. I put it on a table for you. You probably can't read that. But let me describe it to you. Many of the descriptions describe the strength of the warriors. They're bearing shield and sphere. They're mighty men of valor for war. They're seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war. They're armed with shield and spear. They're equipped for battle. They're seasoned troops ready for battle. They're armed with all the weapons of war. So the first major description of this great group is their strength and their power. They are armed. They are lethal. They are ready to fight. And the other descriptions highlight their allegiance. Verse 29, of the Benjaminites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000, of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Now they give it to David. Verse 31, of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were expressly named to come and make David king. 
and verse 32, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. There's the second description. They will be loyal to David. They will make him king. They understand the times. They will live in accordance. They will elevate David's rule. Now, we can't miss the large numbers here. Uh, The numbers are so large that some people wonder whether uh, the word for thousands or hundreds might just be a title for commanders and chiefs rather than literal thousands. But regardless, we are to recognize that this is a mighty army of trained soldiers who are loyal to David and determined to make him king. And in the final verses, we see that vast army doing just that. Verse 38, all these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And so here comes all the strands of these chapters together. All these mighty men, indeed all of Israel, wholehearted, single-minded in making David their king. They come in total commitment and absolute allegiance and they come willingly and they come joyfully submitting to his rule, indeed celebrating his rule. Look at verse 39 and 40. They were there with David for three days eating and drinking for their brothers had made preparations for them. Also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, they came bringing food on donkeys, on camels and mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. And so we have this wonderful picture of all Israel united and in this great spirit of generosity, providing food and celebrating with joy the rule of the king. Here we see all God's people united in joyful celebration of the rule of their king. Well, I think this chapter teaches us two great points. And the first is the greatness of God's king. The fact that such mighty and powerful people unite under the rule of King David serves to highlight all the more the greatness of the one whom they served. David is truly great. He is God's promised king, and all this happens according to the word of the Lord. And he is, therefore, worthy, secondly, of the loyalty of all his people. All God's people must submit wholeheartedly to serving God's great King. Well, what about us this morning? How would we apply those two points? We know that the chronicler looked back in the past to help look forward to the future. He wanted them to look for the coming of this great King, a King like David to whom they would give their allegiance and their loyalty and their wholehearted service, no matter how great they were and no matter how much it would cost them. 
And of course, we know that that great king that the chronicler was looking forward to has come. King David's greatest son, Jesus Christ, was born the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We read in our New Testament reading the prophecy of his birth in Luke chapter 1. Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And in his life and in his death, this prophecy would be fulfilled. He would die on the cross, defeating his enemies on our behalf. He would destroy sin and death and the devil once for all. And then on the third day, he would rise again to the right hand of God. He would declare to the disciples, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then he would send out his people to summon from every tribe and nation those who would bow the knee before him. Jesus is that great king, greater than David. And we are to make him our king. We are to give him our wholehearted allegiance. We are to be ready to serve him even if it risks our lives for the advance of his kingdom. And it doesn't matter how great we are in this world, how impressive we are. All in this world, irrespective of who we are, whether we are great or we are small, we must all give total, undivided allegiance to this king because he is God's king. He is establishing God's kingdom. He will bring about God's presence with his people and he will unite all the nations under his rule. Philippians 2 gives us a glimpse of that end when he returns God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as all those of the world, great and small, declare his kingship, his greatness will be seen by all. So what cause is great enough to give our life to? What cause is great enough to risk our lives for? What cause is great enough to look to it alone as our source of joy and celebration? Life is tragically short. All that matters is living under the rule of this good king who is almighty who has conquered death itself. We do not fight for him as the mighty men do, you'll be relieved to know. We don't advance the gospel by war. The kingdom Jesus brings is not a physical kingdom like David's. It's not a political kingdom like David's. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so the war we fight is not physical. It is a spiritual war. It is a war that we fight by proclamation and by prayer. And in Jesus' kingdom, greatness is not seen in power and strength like it is with these mighty men. Jesus teaches us that the mighty men are those who suffer 
and sacrifice. Jesus himself taught his disciples this in Matthew's Gospel. You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So don't be confused. Jesus is great, greater than even David, this wonderful picture of David. But Jesus' greatness is seen supremely in how he uses his greatness to sacrifice and serve. And he calls us to do the same. The question for us this morning, will we give our strong support to Jesus Christ? Will we acknowledge his greatness and make him the king of our life? Will we say, we are yours, we are with you, peace to you, peace to your helpers? And will we therefore turn away our allegiance from all other rival kings that would challenge his rule? Will we serve him alone with wholehearted commitment and trust? There is only one cause that is worth giving your life to. There is only one cause worth risking your life for. There is only one cause worth your joy and celebration. It's the cause of our King, Jesus Christ. And if other causes have caught our attention, they are too small and they must be discarded. We must give our life firstly, single-mindedly to serving King Jesus. There might be some here this morning for which real repentance is required because we realize actually that Jesus is not the number one priority in our life at all. We're not totally committed. We're not single-minded. Other things have got our heart, not Jesus. Will you repent this morning? Will you recognize Jesus' greatness and submit to him and give him the glory that he is due? All God's people must submit wholeheartedly to serving God's great King, Jesus Christ. So will you speak boldly for him? And will you pray urgently for the advance of his kingdom? And will you engage boldly against temptation? And will you stand courageously for him in the face of opposition? I'm asking, will you be one of Christ's mighty men? who will be loyal to him, no matter what. There is no other cause worth living for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that this passage helps us to appreciate the greatness and the majesty and the splendor of your Son. Lord, we know that he sits enthroned at your right hand, ruling over every nation. Lord, we know he will return, that every knee will bow, every tongue confess him as Lord. Lord, we know that you are with him, 
that you are helping him. And Lord, we know that you call each one of us to give our undivided allegiance to him, no matter how great we think we are. Father, we pray that you would help us to turn from rival kings that would take our allegiance away from him, to turn from rival causes that would capture our hearts away from him and help us to treasure him and to love him and to celebrate his rule in our lives and so give ourselves to serving him every day that we have in this short life you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.